welcome to Democracy Works. I'm Jenna Spinelli. This week, we are bringing you a recording of a virtual event that I hosted with Andrew Yang and Charlie Dents about the future of political parties in America and democracy reform more broadly. Uh, we talked about things like open primaries and ranked choice voting and, you know, how to think about a third party as a party or a movement and what that line of demarcation might be to flip from one to the other. Andrew and Charlie are both very enthusiastic. They don't always agree on everything, but I think they had a, a spirited back and forth and everybody who attended the event live seemed to come away motivated and, and a little more hopeful about the future of American democracy. So I hope that you come away from this episode with similar feelings. Here now is the recording of the virtual event with Andrew Yang and Charlie Dent. To dive in here, uh, I'd like to start by having each of you diagnose the problem or, or problems you see with America's political parties and perhaps the party system as you see it. So, uh, Andrew, why don't you start us off? Oh, well, thank you, Jenna. Um, and, and Charlie and I had a very brief exchange beforehand. We disagree violently about just about everything. No, I'm kidding. I, I think we see eye to eye on a lot of it. <laughs> so uh, I ran for president as a Democrat, which is probably when most of you met me when I showed up on your TV screen at some point. Uh, and after my run ended, I started trying to figure out why we feel so stuck, why it doesn't feel like democracy is actually moving us forward. And I have determined that it is not working because it is not designed to work. And Charlie, I'd love to hear what you think about this, but right now we have very clear political incentives that reward someone for hewing to the party line and listening to the most partisan voters in their district. Uh, if you have a closed party primary, which is the case in most districts, your goal is not to get primaried from within your party, because if you get to the general election, you're going to win in 83% of the districts. 83% of the districts are either very blue or very red. So if you get to the general, you win. Uh, and the goal then is to just make sure you don't get challenged from within your party. This is one reason why there's such a vast divide right now where the approval rating for US Congress nationwide right now is about 28%. And most of you knew it was low. Maybe that's a little bit lower than you thought. The re-election rate for individual members is 92%, 94%, which I joke on the road is the win rate of the 96-97 Jordan-era Chicago Bulls. <laughs> like, if you are an incumbent, you're going to win most of the time as long as you avoid getting primaried. So we have very, very strong political incentives that are trying to keep people from compromising. Charlie, to his credit, and a lot of his like-minded colleagues like to compromise. But Charlie can attest to the fact that the folks who stepped forward and, for example, voted on the infrastructure package favorably from the Republican Party are now getting attacked not because people had any principled objection to the policy, but just because of the politics of it. They thought that it might boost Joe Biden and the other party. So you have these incentives that are pushing people to the sides. You then have media organizations with the same incentives trying to, to separate us into, into ideological camps. And then social media layered upon the whole thing that just pours gasoline on it, makes it so if you say something about the other side being nice, you'll, you'll probably get trashed immediately. So in this context, we feel stuck because we're being set up to fail. 
the two-party system is driving us towards Civil War 2.0. And if that seems hyperbolic, 42% of Americans on either side of the aisle now regard the other side as evil or their mortal enemies, much higher than any time in the past. Charlie has been in public service long enough to know that it wasn't always like this. It was not always as polarized. The two parties used to actually get together and do things occasionally. They didn't regard each other as uh, evil, certainly, in person. Um, whereas now the tenor has shifted. So what do we have to do about it? We have to recognize that this two-party system is not going to serve us well, that we're going to be trapped in a game of you lose, I lose, while the people lose faith, lose trust, and none of the problems get solved. That our clear choice right now is either to degenerate into political strife and conflict and violence, or have a political reawakening and rejuvenation to reach a different arrangement than this two-party duopoly that, by the way, is totally made up. Nothing in the founding documents about it. Constitution, silent on it. George Washington, John Adams, anti-partisan. It came about decades later and has now run its course, and we need a new chapter in American democracy that enables different points of view to actually emerge, which, by the way, right now the duopoly is designed to suppress at every turn. So that's where we are. 62% of Americans want an alternative. Duopoly wants to keep it from happening. And what will happen next? It's going to be up to you, the people who are attending this today. The future of democracy rests upon you, your generation, uh, and Americans around the country to wake up and say, this is not going to work. Charlie, what do you, what do you make of, of what Andrew said and perhaps your, your own diagnosis of, of the problem with the parties as they currently stand. Well, this is where I, I agree with Andrew that the incentives are misaligned in our system right now. The, uh, the, the he, he, he's correct when he says that, you know, most Republican members of Congress, Democratic members of Congress come from very safe seats, that their battles are won or lost in their primaries. Uh, and that in order to survive politically, they have to look over their right or left shoulder. Uh, and that's how they survive and not get outflanked. And so they end up being either taking harder positions or getting co-opted by uh, uh, more more um, extreme elements within their parties, and they so they tack hard uh, to their bases. Now, and that's the reality. Now, like I always like to point out, I was one of the few folks who came from what would be considered a marginal district, a swing district, a bellwether district, call it what you will. And you know, I always said the math in my district was a little different than the math in all these other districts. You know, I would I, I would. Uh, point out that in order for me or any Republican in the wit to win in the district that I held, where there were more Democrats than Republicans, I needed to win 85 to 90 percent of the Republican vote. I needed to win over half of the independents and nearly 30 percent of the Democrats. If I it, it simply engaged in what many members of Congress do currently, which is simply pander to a base, or in this case, just the Republican base, and just focus exclusively on that, I'd probably get 43, 44% of the vote. Where I come from, we call that losing. And, um, and uh, long story short is that, uh, you know, until these incentives are changed, I don't see the system getting better. And we're also in a period of what I would call negative partisanship. It's not that people in one party or the other like their party that much. They just hate the other party more. And so that's what drives a lot of this, this anger. And, and as Andrew mentioned, we talked, just before coming on air here, uh, just today in Congress, a friend of mine, John Katko, uh, Republican, represents a, a Democratic-leaning district in upstate New York, Syracuse area. 
is being is being attacked within the House Republican Conference for over an hour and a half today because not because he get engaged in misconduct, not because he brought discredit upon the House, but because he voted for a bipartisan infrastructure bill. Heaven forbid, a policy disagreement is now rises to the level of sanction. I mean, I would have never thought this could happen. I mean, and well, he's, and this is in the same conference. I'm sure that Marjorie Taylor Greene and the Paul Gosar were there who have just engaged in, you know, uh, you know, terrible behavior, it's without sanction. You know, so, you you know, this is a, it's really a bizarre world we live in. So, um, and I think one other thing I would add too, that our, our founders, as Andrew pointed out, didn't anticipate political parties. And I would argue that they didn't anticipate primary elections either. <laughs> and, they, uh, they didn't, and I think that's where our system is particularly broken. It's the way we nominate candidates. And, you know, uh, that that really, I think, creates problems for this system. And until we figure out how to how to nominate people um, better, I think we're going to continue to have problems. It's a bigger problem than uh, reapportionment or gerrymandering. It's a much I think it's a much bigger problem. Um, You have to figure it out, because even in gerrymandered districts, you have the same issue of how you get nominated uh, and uh, doesn't help you. I just want to say, I'm putting my cards on the table right now. I'm going to spend this next period just trying to enlist you, Charlie. <laughs> because, I mean, you're, you're the perfect representative of someone who actually uh, won in a swing district. You're the disappearing breed. You're, you know what I mean? Like, you're the endangered species of the U.S. Congress. And, like, I, I want to enlist you in, in trying to solve this problem so that people like you can be in Congress for as long as you want. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's we're, we're the outliers now. I mean, that's that's what, and, and there was a time in our country where our political parties were less ideological, less ideologically unified. You know, they, you know, in other words, a diversity of opinion within a political party is actually healthy. It's not a bad thing. You know, see, like I said, my friend John Katko being being uh, being keel hauled for voting for a bipartisan infrastructure bill. Okay, you can make an argument for and against that bill. I, I respect that. But but that's okay. That's normal to have that kind of a disagreement within a political we, party. We all know it's purely politics. I mean, 19 Republican senators voted for that thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> Including Lindsey Graham, by the way, and Mitch McConnell. And uh, and, and and that's what I find so dis- dis- disheartening that you know that when when does when do policy disagreements rise to this level? I mean, we could they, they could be sanctioning people every week, you know, um, yeah. over over a policy disagreement. But parties used to be more like uh, larger coalitions that were a bit more diverse, both sides. Right. And that is so, so Charlie, let me ask you, and and, and uh, Andrew, maybe you can wait wait on this too. Like, are you? hearing conversations uh, about how those incentives change or do you have thoughts about like which chess piece on the board needs to move first to really start moving past all of those those things you you've just been describing go ahead charlie oh, i'm sorry was that for me yes okay um uh, so the question being what, what do we yeah. So have you heard, are, you know, you talk to a lot of different people. Have you yeah. heard about, you know, people starting to think about how to change these incentives and, you know, perhaps yeah. which chess piece on the board do you think needs to move first here? Yeah. Um, yeah. Look, I, I think a few things you could, you could do. Uh, we should probably move towards open primaries. 
I do think that would be that would be that that won't solve the problem, but I think it, it's a step in the right direction. Um, you know, I have mixed feelings on ranked choice voting, which I know we're going to talk about. I'm not sure. I mean, Andrew can speak to it better than I can. He just went through it up in New York City. Yeah. I, you know, I've never really had to deal with that situation. You're going to probably want to talk about, you know, multi-member districts. That might be interesting. And, and uh, but at the end of the day, you know, you look at the, our, our system, you know, the House of Representatives, uh, you know, needs to, needs to more closely reflect the American population. I would argue that in the U.S. House of Representatives, uh, the, the hard elements of the bases are rep very, very well represented, overrepresented in Congress, where the political center of the country, center left to center right, I would argue is grossly underrepresented. Uh, and even though I would probably argue that most of the country probably identifies itself somewhere between center left to center right on the political spectrum. Probably a slight, slight center right country more than center left, but, but still, you get the, the point. Uh, and these are the people you know, who I think are feeling very unhappy and are the ones who swing, you know, you know, you have the hardcore Republicans and Democrats who are going to vote for their team no matter what. But as we just saw in 2021 in this election, well, guess what? They, a lot of, a lot of Biden voters just voted for uh, Youngkin and, and, uh, and um, uh, Shitarelli up in New York and New Jersey and in Long Island. You saw a lot of uh, voters who were voted for Biden, voted for Republican candidates and it's happened all over the country and, and they can swing back again. You know, somebody used the term thermostatic to describe how voters are in midterm elections. You know, one party gets control, you know, temperature is too hot, they got to turn it down. And they want to always kind of put in a little bit of a check on the governing party. And that's the way it is. But there's a significant part of the population that is, I think, is very uneasy with this. Right. Charlie, I, I could not agree with you more that the first big move we can make is open primaries. And the magic there is that this is not something that you need Congress to do, that it's all controlled at the state level. If you have enough Americans get together and run ballot initiatives, you can shift to open primaries, which will weaken the influence of the most extreme 10 to 15 percent partisan voters, which, as you say right now, are completely overrepresented in terms of influence. Alaska made this change just last year. And you saw relatively immediate results where Senator Lisa Murkowski is the only Republican senator who voted to impeach Trump this year and is also up for re-election in 2022. Uh, this is a politically suicidal move. Her approval rating among Alaskan Republicans is now 6%. You know? So that's why no one does it. Yeah. But because they shifted from party primaries to open primaries last year, she has a fighting chance to get reelected. I'll probably go to Alaska to campaign for her. I actually offered that to her when I saw her a few weeks ago, and, and she said she'd take me up on it. Um, so this change you're talking about, Charlie, is the change, and it's right in front of us. Like We can do it. If enough of us get together, we can actually shift to open primaries now, or not now, now, but like 12 yeah. months from now. Yeah. And, and can you just um, back up for, for a second, Andrew, for those who might not be familiar with open primaries, can you <laughs> tell us what they are and, and how they differ from a, a traditional party primary? Well, Charlie hit the nail on the head, which is that our founding fathers had no idea that there would be political parties. They certainly wouldn't want two political parties, and they certainly would not want these primary elections that then end up determining the winner the vast majority of the time. So right now, uh, in the vast majority of races, the way it works is you have, I'm going to choose, let's say, a part of Western PA that's very, very Republican. Um, so you have a Republican primary, and whoever wins that primary then beats up on this, frankly, 
sacrifice lamb of a Democrat <laughs> who, who, who gets who runs and like everyone knows they're not going to win. Um, and, and so the party primary is where all the action is. Um, about 10 to 15 percent of voters vote in the party primary. You have to be a registered member of that uh, party nine times out of 10. In my race in New York, you had to have registered as a Democrat four months before the race in order to vote in the primary, uh, as an example. Uh, and so this process is artificially empowering people who are not necessarily representative, who tend to be the most rabid partisans. And so what Charlie is saying is we should switch this process up that instead of having it, so you have Republicans here, which is again, probably the winner, and then Democrats over here, and that, that's pretty much the race. You have an open primary system where anyone can run from any party. So you could have two Republicans, a Democrat, an independent, a libertarian, a forwardist, etc. cetera. Uh, and then you proceed to see who gets the most support independent of party, independent of what the voter registration is. So if you're watching this and you're unregistered or an independent or whatever, you can vote for whichever the candidates you like the most. So Charlie, you talked about how you like open primaries, you're not as sure about ranked choice voting. What I'm going to suggest is that if you have a truly open process where you could have, I don't know, eight candidates running, that uh, it's much more practical and feasible to have the general election decided to be a ranked choice voting than through our current plurality voting system. Because if you did have, let's say, two Republicans and a Democrat come through, and the problem in our current system is that the Republicans would cannibalize each other and then the Democrat wins without actually having majority support. Whereas with ranked choice voting, whoever wins has to have majority support and you don't cannibalize each other. There's no spoiler effect. So uh, effectively open primaries um, often will end up leading to something like ranked choice voting if you let in more than two candidates um, into the final uh, general election. So in California, they have these open primaries, they let two people through, and so there's no need to adjust the process. But if you were to let more people than two through, then you'd want to have something like ranked choice voting because you don't want uh, two people from the same party to eat each other's vote. See, in California, they have something called, I always thought they call that with a jungle primary. You know, and where, where you know, in Pennsylvania, when I, when I think of open primary, I'm thinking, Okay, there's a primary election still for the Republican nominee, but anyone can vote in it. Republican, Democrat, or Independent can vote in the Republican primary. That's what I'm kind of thinking of in terms of an open primary. Same on the Democratic side. Republicans could vote in the Democratic primary, but you only have to vote once. You know, you can you get to choose which party primary you want to vote in. Right. Um, that's that's my yeah. So, so you're right to draw this distinction, Charlie. Um, we, we might be talking about slightly different measures. So um, so there's a closed party primary. And then what you're saying is you should open it up so that anyone who's, let's say, an independent can come in and vote um, in that primary. And then that's what that's what they've decided to be for the purpose of that election. They, they can't like switch later and do something else um, uh, in, in the, you know, the, the general. Um, the California system, what you refer to as a jungle primary, is actually what I prefer, which is that anyone can run from any party and you just have at it. Uh, and then you count up the votes and then whoever gets the most number of votes from anyone of any party ends up coming through the general. The tweak I would make to the California system is that I would want more than two candidates to make it through to the general so that you have a chance of 
uh, a little bit more diversity uh, and um, more dynamism. Right. So, you know, here here in Pennsylvania, um, we both have closed primaries currently and we are not a ballot initiative state. So, um, you know, how how might you go about selling this in in Pennsylvania and, you know, how I guess. Um, Andrew, how feasible is it, do you think, to do this without an, an, a ballot initiative? And, and Charlie, um, uh, how might you make the case to the, the state legislature to, to get them on board with something like this? Well, I, I'll certainly lead off, and Charlie, ha having served in the state legislature, has a sense of it. So it's very hard. <laughs> Uh, it, a ballot initiative is not an easy thing either, though I do want to point out again that one state, Alaska, did this last year. Just a, bu a bunch of Alaskans got together and said, the current system's not working, let's change it. So it's clearly achievable in 24 states around the country that do have ballot initiatives. In a non-ballot initiative state like Pennsylvania, the state legislators would need to decide to make this change. Um, now, if you were to ask the average state legislator, hey, do you want to shake it up and let different points of view emerge and you don't have a closed party primary, they don't like it because they figured out the current system. You know, in the current system, they're like, okay, I know who I need to please. If I get to this process, I know I win the general. Um, if you're a political consultant, you will also say, hey, let's keep this the same because I've got it figured out. So it's tough in, uh, in an environment where you need the state legislators to make this kind of move. Not impossible. If you had enough people get together, you could make the case. Pennsylvania is an interesting case because you all are a genuine swing state. Um, so it's not that there's one party in power that just like runs the whole show. So you could try and make a case that, look, this is going to be better for uh, Pennsylvanians, for democracy. One of the things I have seen that you can do in an environment where the state legislators may or may not be on board is you can actually enact uh, ranked choice voting as one example or open primaries uh, in a city, in a locality. And one of the things that happens very often is that if some city within a state adopts some of these measures, then it starts making sense to everyone. Because uh, change sometimes can be a little bit um, daunting to people, but as soon as someone is using it. So let's say, hypothetically, Pittsburgh were to start using ranked choice voting and, and it had like, uh, you know, um, nonpartisan primaries, uh, then people in Pennsylvania would be like, oh, well, Pittsburgh's doing it, so maybe we should do it statewide. So that, that'd be what I would suggest is that if you think that you can't get it through the state legislature, you can actually make it happen at the local level. Harley, what do you think? Well, you know, I guess as I'm just listening to all this, um, I'm starting to think that you know, we, we need, well, legislators, they, they, got, they get elected under the current system. Let's be clear about that. Uh, and, and since they've been elected under the system, they're probably less apt to, to want, to, want to change it. I, you know, as, and as, as contentious as our national politics has become, it seems at the local level, and I'm not saying in the case of New York City, but I'm saying at the case of many local elections, you know, they're not, a lot of them aren't particularly competitive, even state representative races. I don't know how many go uncontested these days. But always a significant number did because the districts are so lopsided. Uh, and and so and that's part of the reason why this whole open primary becomes interesting, because people in their districts in those districts know that they're lopsided. And so they want to have a say. So if they can't have a say in the general election, they want to have a say in the primary, even if they're not a member of that party, because they want to they want to be part of the decision of who's going to be the, the representative. 
they don't feel like they're really part of it, or at least they're, they're not making an impact. Um, now, uh, we talk about issues like, um, you know, multi-member districts, you know, I, I, you know, I guess I've forgotten that many states like New Jersey do that currently in this for the state legislature and maybe for some county like their freeholders and they call them freeholders in New Jersey. But, you know, in my state, you know, I, I was first elected to the legislature in 1990 when we went to one man or I should say one person, one vote, uh, one person, one vote. Uh, and that's where we've, we've been. But before I, I would go back to the 1960s, I guess they made the change. We had a state constitutional convention back in 1968. 67, 68, around that time, where they went to this system of one man, one vote, and they thought it was a good reform, because we used to have, I think they used to represent, elect the state representatives, almost like on a county basis. And so you could have, you know, some Republicans and Democrats, but they, I think they all represented the, the county. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I don't, I haven't really thought it through in my own mind, whether or not that could work at the federal level, or if it's even permissible at the federal level. But I, I love where your head's at, Charlie. So this multi-member district idea that you're suggesting has been proposed by a guy named Lee Drutman that uh, Jenna and I were just talking about. And believe it or not, someone's actually submitted a bill in Congress called the Fair Representation Act that would shift from single-member districts to multi-member districts and end up making it so that some of the minor parties or independent parties might have a representative on the basis of the fact that they got whatever 10-15% of the vote. Now this is a very this is a very very big shift from our current system and a lot of Americans frankly would be totally confused by it. Um, uh, and one of the reasons why I'm not leading with that in terms of the forward party and what I'm trying to make happen right now is it requires an act of Congress that I think is highly unlikely to pass. <laughs> but you should know that uh, that it's actually on the table now um, where there, there is a bill, there are people talking about it, um, and it sounds like it would be something similar to what you've seen at the state level and the, uh, the federal level. I don't know what you think about that, Charlie. What, what's yeah. your reaction to that? I, I just, you know, I, I think you're right that the state, I mean, the federal, the, con the Congress would probably not enact such a change, but, you know, but, you, but it, is, it is disturbing when you see some states where they have no members of the other party in Congress, even though there are plenty of members of the other party in that state. You know, I think they, I think they pointed out like uh, you take Oklahoma as all Republican representatives, but they're Democrats in Oklahoma and, and, and Arkansas and places like that, even though the delegations are completely one-sided, at least uh, in the, in the house and the, uh, in the house of representatives. Uh, same thing in, um, in Massachusetts is probably another example of a state where, you know, there are a lot of, they have a Republican governor up there for Pete's sake, but they have a lot of, they have, you know, they, they have a, significant number of Republicans, you know, and, and we don't, and you know, our founders, they created the system in a way, if they, if they wanted to have proportional representation, they probably would have been better off with a parliamentary system, <laughs> but that's, but they were more concerned about an abuse of executive authority. And, and they wanted a Congress to be a strong check on, on, on the executive. And I, and I would argue, you know, we've moved away from a system of separation of powers, one to a system of separation of parties. And what I mean by that is the, the parties that like it, it, it's it's the the member if you're a member of the president's party, you're a member of the president's party in Congress, you often feel it's your job to protect the president rather than protect your inst your institution. And I think the founders wanted the members of Congress to be protective of their authorities. 
Um, not to be at war with the president, work with the president, but you don't work for the president. You work, your job is to work with the president. You're allowed to disagree with the president. And when you do, that's, that's, that's healthy. They want executive authority to be so strong. And so, so they created this system of separation of powers. But when they did that, I mean, it probably unwittingly, but they made it more difficult, I think, to create multiple parties. Charlie, you, you've hit you've hit the nail on the head that right now, if you wanted to design a system that was vulnerable to authoritarianism, you would design a system like ours, <laughs> where, where if you have one of the two major parties succumb to bad leadership, then all the political incentives for everyone who's in Congress, member of that party, is just to say, okay, let's back up the president. And, and to to a point you made earlier. Even if you have a problem with the leader of your party, you're like, well, the person's a lot better than the other side if you literally just have a two-sided system. If you have a two-sided system, then all of the incentives are to say, well, you know, we and, and so there's a single point of failure then for uh, the entire country to become authoritarian, which is does one of the two parties um, succumb to a particular form of leadership? Um, and then we're there, more or less, as long as like, if that party has control. So if you wanted to make a system that was more genuinely resistant to authoritarianism, you would have to have more than two parties. Uh, you know, if you look around the world, the UK has five parties, Sweden has eight parties, Germany has seven parties, Netherlands has 18 parties, like, you know, and in that system, if you have a party to come to bad leadership, then you don't have this grave a threat. And this is something that I know you feel very acutely because you came up in Congress and the Republican Party had different people, different points of view. It wasn't as monolithic as it threatens to be now, where everyone who has said anything that's independent of Trump is just getting singed. You know, you have like, um, like Kinzinger is not running again. Uh, Gonzalez is not running again. Like that's like two of the 10 people that voted to impeach him. And he has a list where he says like two down, eight to go. And everyone can see it happening. It's the same thing now with the 13 who voted for infrastructure. Where they're trying to attack him. The whole thing is very, very badly designed. Um, and in your experience and the experience of your peers, I think is so instructive because you were this. Uh, when you say before that the United States is probably a center right country, I tend to agree with you. I feel you are essentially the embodiment of like the barometer of the country. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like when you were um, in in Congress. Uh, it's one reason why you won in an area that, you know, as you say, had, had tons of Democrats. Um, and, and then now the parties have just kind of like, like, you know, headed in these directions. And then like the, the set of principles that you embody and your friends embody is just disappearing. Um, so it's a very vulnerable system is my point. Uh, and uh, you and I share the concerns about what that vulnerability could mean. Okay. Now, by the way, speaking of that, you think about like a, you know, somebody takes a position that's heterodox, you know, they're not orthodox in their, in their viewpoint, you know, they get called traitors now. So in other words, like I, you take the, I was the last pro-choice Republican in the House Republican Con Congress, conference, myself and Rodney Friedlingheiser were the last two. And, and, but, you know, if you look at polling, about 30% of Republicans self-identify as pro-choice, but there's zero Congress. On the Republicans. Yeah, zero is a lot less than 30%. You know, <laughs> same is true. You know, they used to have a lot of, uh, you know, you know, we call pro-life Democrats. Uh, you know, in fact, many would call them Catholic Democrats. Or in Pennsylvania, we used to call them Casey Democrats. 
you know, pro-labor, pro-life, pro-gun. That was the term that, the, you know, it was a term that was coined. Um, and there was, a, there were a lot of voters like that, but there, that, that, but that, that, that ship has sailed. And, and so even on the democratic side, you know, there's, you know, try running in a democratic primary as a pro-lifer, you know, um, you know, like this fellow, Dan Lipinski was a friend of mine. Uh, he was, you know, a, a Polish American from Chicago, that good Democrat, like many were and that, well, he got beaten in his primary because of, of that issue. And, but in other words, neither party seems to really deal well with those who have a heterodox uh, position, even though many people within their party are, you know, uh, uh, are, are not monolithic in their viewpoints, but the members of the Congress are. We don't have a political outlet in the American political system like they do in Europe. You know, in the UK, they have a, uh, the, the, the Liberal Party. In Germany, they call them the Free Democrats, but these are the folks who you know, who don't, uh, you know, who might be, who, who in the United States used to be able to find a home in either party, but now they're kind of, I think they're kind of lost. <laughs> and, uh, and um, you know, we just, we just don't Well, like Char Charlie, you're not going to believe it, but I have taken it upon myself to create a political home for those people. Uh, so it's called the Ford Party. It's not left or right, it's Ford. And it actually includes a lot of the people you're describing who uh, are, um, very much underrepresented politically right now, and there's no place to go. Um, now, the open question is whether this movement that I kicked off last month uh, will be able to make meaningful headway in an environment where all of the political incentives are toward the extremes. Uh, you know, and there are a lot of people who are keeping a very close eye on what we're building at the Forward Party because th there's both this sense, it's like, oh, that can't be done, and then it's intrigue. It's like, wait, can it be done? <laughs> and, 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 there, and there are a lot of people who want it to happen, um, but the people who want it to happen are also mindful of these incentives we're talking about. And what I tried, I said to a donor today, I, I you know, occasionally I have donors, it's very exciting. Um, so I, I said to a donor today is that, like, you know, what we have to do is we have to recreate the political incentives that exist right now around the extremes to get them votes, media and money. It's like right now, if you're a political figure, you respond to those things. Um, and so if you go into this middle ground uh, of independence or what you call Casey Democrats or whatever it is, um, where do you get these things? Where do you get the votes, the uh, media, and the money? And so my job right now is to create the votes, the media, and the money for people who decide to uh, represent this underrepresented area. Yes, yeah, see, I, it, I never felt that third parties do well in our country. They just, the system's not stacked with them, but we, we probably, but we do need a movement. We need a movement. And, and, and I, I, here's the example I would often use, Andrew. I would say, think of, um, you know, okay, I'm, I'm a Republican. And so if I say, okay, in Arizona, Mark Kelly's running for re-election, but if they nominate somebody who I find to be, Republicans nominate somebody I find offensive, like say Kelly Ward, who could be the nominee, well then this, this group of swing voting folks, this movement, say, okay, well, you know what? We're gonna vote for Mark Kelly in this one, regardless of your party. And in other words, be a, be a true swing block that you know that can that can that can influence you, you know, party you'll, you'll be you'll be happy to to know charlie that at least the forward party right now that's exactly what we do um because there is no forward party candidate in you know 99.9 percent .9 of races uh and and so uh, and you and i talked about it 
like we're going to support David McKinley against his opponent because David McKinley is uh, in our mind a more reasonable pragmatic Republican uh, and in, and like in in this case he voted for infrastructure <laughs> you know <laughs> and, and he's being attacked for it um, so one of the joys of being this third party independent movement is we can uh, endorse Democrats who we think are trying to do the right thing. We can endorse Republicans who are trying to do the right thing. Everyone's in a blue moon. There might be an independent. <laughs> who, who, um, and, and then our goal is to make it so that people can run as something other than an R or a D um, and actually have a chance to contend. Right. So we have we have questions piling up here in the uh, Q&A. There's, there's lots of folks who have been waiting a very long time for the McCourtney Institute to do an event where we talk about things like open primaries and, and ranked choice voting. So I want to get to as many as we can. Um, but but first, you know, to that point of, of incentives you were you were talking about, um, I, I want to ask both of you about the role of neoliberalism in our two-party dynamic. You know, there's a, a well out there sort of critique that for from basically Reagan through Obama, both parties were, um, you know, really wedded to a market based ideology, and that led to income inequality. And that in turn, you know, breeded some of the the sort of populism or, you know, extremism we saw on the left and the right with thinking about, you know, for example, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump in in 2016. Um, and so I guess I, I'm interested in, you know, what what each of you thinks of that that critique and you know to to what extent does our new movement need to sort of just dis dismiss or or divorce itself from you know the sort of rigidity of of market-based thinking or or neoliberal principles i'm happy to kick this one off uh i i i wrote a book on the fact that uh technology is going to assume more and more value and work uh, and it's going to exacerbate inequality uh, and that's been going on in some form for years and decades it started in the 70s and 80s there, there there are two main forces behind it one is capital and the other is technology and now they're intertwined uh, in ways that would be inconceivable to most economists or most americans uh, not that long ago one example i use that's familiar to everyone there are two million Americans who answer for a living right now in call centers. Google AI will be able to do that job yesterday. What then happens, and oh, by the way, how much is Google gonna pay in taxes on that AI? I guarantee the two million call center workers pay some taxes. Uh, you know, Google's AI probably pays nothing. Uh, and then you can actually have that situation compounded over and over again throughout the economy. So in, in that environment, if you say, hey, the market's gonna figure it out, it's like, well, the market's gonna figure out how to get rid of a lot of people. <laughs> like the, the market's not gonna figure out a way to make Main Street, Pennsylvania thrive, uh, you know, and, and has this been driving some of the political uh, and cultural episodes of the last number of years? Of course it has, you know, it, it's why I decided to run for president because I had traveled in Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Alabama, Louisiana, Missouri. I saw the aftermath of the loss of manufacturing jobs, and I knew that was going to happen to retail jobs and then to administrative jobs and then on and on through the economy. So things are getting faster, not slower. Things are getting more extreme and unequal, not less. Uh, and you have to make big moves if you're going to address that, even if you have a chance to address that. So uh, I like that there, there's been this overrunning of both of the two major parties in terms of what you described as neoliberal thinking or 
the market will figure it out. Um, and, and a lot of Americans on some level sense that's not working. Uh, so the question is what comes next? Uh, I have some ideas. I mean, the, the forward parties uh, platform is around trying to transition to what, what we call a human-centered economy, which is just how people are doing is your measurement of progress. And then you'd see that, by the way, our standard of living, living has been declining for you know, 30, 40 years. Uh, and so if you start making that, because right now, stock market record highs, GDP record highs, but a lot of that's going to get fueled by technology, and most Americans are not going to be included in that. So that that's uh, that to me is like the the main driver, and it's and it's really really on our media organizations for just turning a blind eye to this. You could say that it's because they didn't understand it. Um, I, I'm going to say it's actually because they don't care, or because they are in bed with the two political parties, and the whole thing is part of this flywheel that has nothing to do with improving our lives anymore. Yeah, and the way the media covers politics too it's, it's really more of a horse race type of thing you know they, they spend a lot of time obsessing on polls uh spend a lot of time just ex- obsessing on the, the race as it is you know there's not much of a there's not much reflection that goes on uh, you know or, or or even serious uh, analysis of policy doesn't right. happen well, part of its rhythm of the the news segments charlie and you know i've both been on cnn uh, it's tough because you got like a six minute segment, you know, it's going to have um, four or five questions. And so what you do is you like, you know, answer the question. A lot of it's the format. It, it's uh, a visual medium. It's supposed to be simulating and the rest of it. Uh, it's tough to convey anything that's more long term or reflective uh, in that format. Right. And, uh, you know, speaking of, of of media, you know, it's also we live in a very um, you know, self-directed media landscape. People can choose to read or watch or listen to, you know, whatever they want to. For for the most part, I know you have a you have a podcast, Andrew. That's sort of one example of it. Um, and you know, we we have a question here in the the Q and A that sort of relates to that. Um, a lot of people are just generally burnt out on politics or even from the pandemic and don't have the time or the energy to keep up with new movements or things like ranked choice voting or open primaries. And so, you know, how do you get these messages out to people who are not all of the democracy nerds that are, are watching with us here today? Are you all democracy nerds? That would make me very happy. Democracy I, nerds I, I unite. So. <laughs> Forward ho. Um, uh, so first, let me say I agree with this questioner. Uh, I think right now there's a lot of fatigue, <laughs> you know, and, and one of the things too, this is a result of the polarized environment we're in. I said the other night to people that the animating emotion uh, around elections today is fear. <laughs> and, and it's impossible to be afraid all of the time forever. Like eventually you're like, oh, like, you know, let, let me just freaking, you know, watch a movie or hang out or do something. Um, uh, and so uh, I uh, appreciate the question. I agree with the sentiment. Um, I'm going to suggest that the, the way I'm trying to make this stuff happen is by not being doom and gloom about it, by just trying to make it seem like upbeat and invigorating and we can fix this and you know, it is like the future. Um, uh, good vibrations sort of thing. Um, also package it in a way that's interesting uh, and uh, maybe even humorous 
Like I, it's one of the reasons why I'm now going to be investing in this whole new media apparatus of podcasts and other independent voices that can reach people perhaps in a different way. Because the, the fact is, and I said this to my team too, I was like, look, I cannot hold people's interest just talking about open primaries and ranked choice voting for two years. You know, it's freaking boring. <laughs> you know, like like there, there have to be other things that you end up wrapping into it. Um, so I understand the challenge 100%. Uh, I, I have a read on what I can do to try and make it more uh, interesting. Um, what I'm going to suggest to the democracy nerds among you in, in terms of trying to address this problem is to just be accepting of the fact that a lot of people aren't going to be hyper attentive or attuned to this stuff uh, and just to be selective about how you try and activate someone. Uh, the reality is that these things tend to go in waves or cycles and it's harder to get someone to care about something, let's say 12 months before the next election, which is about where we are right now, by the way. Um, but the energy is just going to go up and up and up towards November 22. Um, and then, oh, by the way, after the midterms, the energy is going to like shoot into overdrive because everyone's going to be obsessed with 24. Um, so right now, I would kind of say pace yourselves, pace your friends, you know, like they don't need to be, um, you know, like lining up about <laughs> about this stuff um, every night between now and then. Uh, just sort of pick your battles and get in there when you think you have an opportunity. But at the same time, though, I mean, it does take a long time to get an initiative on the ballot and collect signatures and, you know, all of all of those things. So are are those those campaigns um, underway right now or what what's the, the timeline for those types of things that you're working on? Oh, yeah. So if you want to be apprised of the stuff that I'm working on, you go to forwardparty.com, join the mailing list. We should have the ballot initiative states identified um, sometime next two to three months. Uh, and, and then, so the timeline for a ballot initiative is that uh, you would need to know about it about a year in advance. Uh, and then there's a period when you have to try and gather signatures. So you have to try and ask everyone, hey, help us get, get signatures. Um, and then you have to try and get on the ballot. And then you have various uh, advertising campaigns and canvassing and door knocking, trying to let people know, look, this ballot initiative is on the ballot and it's great. You know, don't be daunted by it. It's fantastic. It's going to improve things and, and, the, and the rest of it. Um, so the action is going to be hot and heavy, uh, hopefully all through next year. And you're 100% right, Jenna, that a lot of the groundwork needs to be laid now. Um, but if, if you're someone who's watching this, you should know that uh, there are individuals, and I, I know a lot of them, that are laying the groundwork as we speak. Uh, and, uh, and so if you want to help, uh, there is going to be ample opportunity for you to help. Uh, and if you have an interest in this, you go to forwardparty.com. Um, I would absolutely love that. And, and we're going to make some changes. It's going to be great. Yeah. Uh, one more question here about the, the forward party. Uh, then we'll, we'll get you back in here too, Charlie. So, um, Andrew, someone asks here, so you say that the, the forward party is not left or right, but forward. Um, how can you form a party about political strategy and depolarization, but does not have key stances on issues that matter to Americans? Well, thank you for the question. It, it, it's actually the fundamental issue that challenges folks who are trying to occupy central space. And so we, we've adopted some things um, that we decided were core uh, around modern and effective government and grace and tolerance and universal basic income. There are other issues um, that 
you know, I think people know where I stand on things. Um, but the case we're making is that, look, you can disagree with Andrew Yang on abortion or, or other things, but we can make common cause around uh, trying to make these structural reforms happen. Uh, the, the game that the two parties play is by taking a stance on the social issue, which, by the way, neither side can legislate anyway right now, um, <laughs> very, very, very often. Um, and so then you take a stance and then that has the advantage of activating one group and then the disadvantage of deactivating another. Uh, and so you could go down the list and like may and choose a bunch of things. Again, I think anyone who decides to you know Google my old website knows where I personally stand on these things. Um, but there are Americans that disagree on a whole host of issues that agree on the need for change of the duopoly. Um, I'll give you one example, libertarians. Libertarians want an alternative to the duopoly in the worst way. Libertarians disagree with me on various things, but libertarians will also look and say, whatever I disagree with Yang on is secondary to the need to try and reform the system. Um, so I very much appreciate the question and it is a judgment call. It's a tough one. It's the it's an issue that any third party movement ends up facing. Right, thank you. Um, Charlie, let's let's get you back in here. So we have a, a question here about incumbents. Um, how how do we get people to vote out incumbents and, and how much of a of an issue or this this sort of set of problems we've been talking about do you think incumbents play here? Well, I would make a case that incumbents in many respects have it harder now than they used to. Um, you know, when I first got involved in politics, I, I ran for the state house in 1990. And I think at that time, the Pennsylvania legislature had a 98% retention rate, much higher than it is today. And what we've seen is that there has been a lot of turnover, at least in the Congress, there has been a lot of turnover. Uh, I should say involuntary turnover <laughs> that the, uh, Members have been defeated. But the way it usually happens, though, it's not like people just come out there and the people say they're going to vote out all incumbents. Well, that never happens. What they do, they usually vote out incumbents of one party or the other. They usually, when they when they vote out incumbents, they're very they're very targeted. Uh, you know, this is this is the year we we have these uh, I'll say these parliamentary voting patterns that have emerged in our system, and particularly in the first year, uh, or I should say, the first midterm of a new president especially when they have full control of the Congress, they, guess what? Um, they're they're, they're going to lose a whole bunch of incumbents. And we saw, you know, this is this is shaping up like 19, this year is shaping up either like 1994, uh, 2010, or 2018. These are the analogous years that I see. And, and, and again, it's, it's that voters are actually throwing out people they're angry with, but it's usually just one party. You know, in 2018, it was Republicans who were, you know, who got their heads handed to them. Um, you know, in 2010, it was the Democrats. And you usually find that almost no incumbents of the, of the winning party lose. Very few. Some, some have, but a very small number. And it's the other side that gets routed. Uh, and, uh, and, and that's, so I, I would just say to the, the questioner that there has been turnover, but maybe not the kind that you had anticipated. Uh, and um, I mean, since I left Congress, I think last I checked, about 40% of the House Republican conference, conference has turned turned over since since I left in 2018. Wow. Yeah. I have to go Wait. check. I should check some Google that check that number. But yeah, yeah, yeah. About 40%. Yeah. 
So, uh, you know, going back, we, we have lots of questions here. Uh, people have really picked up on this open primary, closed primary thing, perhaps not surprising given the, the state of affairs in Pennsylvania we were talking about earlier. Um, would it be possible to reform the closed primary system by encouraging people to register for one party rather than as independents, which we've said, you know, a, a, a much higher percentage of younger voters are choosing to be independent. So is, is that perhaps a path forward in a state like Pennsylvania, or is there is there any way that we could, you know, perhaps simulate what an open primary is without actually needing to get the state legislature to make that change? Um, so first, let me say this is happening all over the place right now. There are so many Americans who look up and say, hey, I'm going to register as a Democrat just to be able to vote <laughs> or, you know, or a Republican just to be able to vote. Um, so so that is happening. Um, it doesn't solve the problem, though, because there is always a very significant body of people who are already registered as the other party. Um, and, and I would also suggest that it's wrong to force Americans <laughs> to register with a particular party uh, in order to have any ability to participate. Um, but that said, if the questioner is thinking, hey, I, let me register as party X so I can vote, you should do that because it's practical. And everyone is already doing that. <laughs> Not everyone, but I'll say like here in New York, I can't tell you how many people are just like, I register as a Democrat because there's no other way to participate. Um, uh, and so there, there are people that would very much uh, prefer another approach, uh, but we do it. We all do do it. And, uh, you know, Charlie, is, is there anything that the, the parties could do here to maybe change the way that they do things um, or are we sort of past the point of, uh, of no return there, do you think? You know what's changed in the parties since I first got involved? I used to think that the role of the political party was to help their candidates get elected. Now, I mean, like, especially at the county committee level, you know, not that they were, they were weak back when I first started and they're still weak. But what's changed though, is at least I thought many people in the party understood their role was to try to nominate the the best most electable candidate that's what they wanted to do now many people who run these county committees you know, it's like a, it's almost like a debating debating society i would go in and say hey you know who's going to help us get petitions signed and you know, yard signs out and all that kind of stuff now it's you know they're they're, they're they become these these forums where they they, they want to instill some kind of uh, purity they have purity tests and, and so how about just how about just putting some yard signs out? You know, <laughs> and that's a, no, I mean, we want to have a, they, they want to, they want to enforce some level of, of uh, indoctrination or make you doctrinaire. And, and I, and that, that's, what's changed for me. Parties you know, are, I think, becoming more and more problematic in this regard. Um, a lot of them aren't about winning. I mean, like I said, look, why would, why would a political party go after a John Kako who represents a dem democratic district? You want to be a majority party. Why would you try to savage a guy with a primary? Uh, you'll, you'll, get a, you'll get a Democrat. Yeah, be, it, yeah it's because, it's, it's because you, you've gone ideological and political to the extreme. Like you're not policy oriented. You're not principled. You're not even trying to help your side win um, in, entirely or else you would just shrug and say, well, we're lucky to have that person representing that district. Um, I've got a question that's a little bit off script here, but I just want to run it by. Um, so in my book, uh, I 
advocate for congressional term limits of 18 years in each house, in part because uh, there, there's a bit of a gerontocracy going on in the U.S. that I think people are noticing, um, and, and that the, the leadership has been there for 20, 25, 30 years, um, which seems excessive. And I just wanted to ask Charlie, as someone who was in Congress, it sounds like for 14 years, um, I, I was advocating for 18 per house, um, which I thought was a long enough period of time so you could still build up relationships and a bit of hierarchy and, and the rest of it, but not so long that people are camping out for, you know, uh, in excess of 20, 25 years. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you say that. You know, I, I always thought that there was going to be a term limit, make it 12 years in House, 12 years in the Senate. Maybe it is 18 years. I often thought for the Supreme Court with all these fights, maybe instead of- They, they need term limits. They need term limits, yeah. It ought to be like an 18 or 20 year limit. 18 for sure. 18 or, yeah, and then you could stagger them. So, you know- it's, Yes. But, um, but I, I just thought it would be kind of interesting. But nevertheless, um, uh, yeah, I, I do think there's some merit to, to term limits. Absolutely. And, you know, I always said that about the Senate. I mean, my goodness, you know, when Strom Thurmond, you know, he was serving in the Senate at the age of 100. You know, you, you know Chuck Grassley is 88 and he's running again, you know. I mean, he's he's aiming for 94. You know, um, you know what Strom Thurmond said when he turned 100 at his birthday party? He said, now that I turn 100, I now support term limits. He said, I don't think anybody <laughs> over the age of 100 should serve more than three terms in the United States Senate. <laughs> And that was just, so. Uh, so I mean, point is a serious point though. It, I, I think it would actually uh, be helpful. But we've had more turnover in the Congress, so I think so the so the movement uh, for term limits has I think dissipated dissipated a bit. But but you're right, Andrew. I mean, the you know it's funny how the, the difference between the Democrats and Republicans in Congress is this: if there's failure on the Republican side, Republicans lose an election. You know, they, they immediately frag the leaders <laughs> or the leader. And they're they're gone, you know. Democratic side, you know, you lose the house, uh, not once but twice. You know, you get, you know, they they. Yeah, no, well, so this is what a complaint of mine. It's like Democrats blame the voters when they lose. It's like, oh, you know, the you know, <laughs> they don't blame they don't blame their, their own leaders of themselves. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, so 74 percent of Americans are for some version of term limits. It's one reason why. But to me, you know, like it's one thing that I was curious about because I, I'm I'm for them. I think it would help. I think, yeah. if, you know, at 18 years, though, I, I think, you know, you look, you can develop a lot of experience in 18 years. You know, I, I had 28 years between state and federal, 14 and 14, roughly. And you can develop a lot of expertise and experience. And I think 18 years, you know, if you can't get if you can't accomplish what you want to do in 18 years, maybe you ought to look for something else. And, you know, you don't think, you know, yes. the joke was the U.S. Senate, you know, God, it was the best skilled nursing care money could buy. You know, <laughs> you get it. I mean, but the. Uh, but I mean, they, they have a, an issue there. Um, you're right. Um, it's, it's, it's much older the House you know, on the House Democratic side. That was one. The one thing Republicans did better, I thought, than Democrats in the House was that we term limited our committee chairs. And wow. We did not appoint our committee chairs based on seniority. And that's and actually that was very helpful. We were able to we were at, frankly, we were able to appoint in many cases better people to those chairmanships over the years and the democrats were kind of stuck with the most senior guys who were very old and we had a lot of people down below them in the democratic house you know who would have been better chairs but they couldn't they couldn't leapfrog 
Wow, I did not know that you all did that relative to the Democrats. That, that's that's fascinating. Kind of got that right. And a lot of Democrats with whom I talked who in Congress kind of liked that Republicans were able to do that. They said, God, I wish we could have that rule too. Oh, of course, there's like a group of upcoming Democrats that like, you know, dearly wish that that was the case on, on their side. I even have a clever way to pass these term limits, Charlie, and I want you to try and nudge some of your old colleagues. Check it out. 18-year term limits in each house but current lawmakers are exempt. You all get grandfathered in. That way they can pass it. It's no skin off anyone's back. And it's only after someone new shows up that the term limits apply to them. So this way they get to be principled and say, we're gonna like do this and it doesn't even affect any of them. That's, that's my clever way to get it in. Or it wouldn't take effect for you know five years out or something mm -hmm. or whatever mm -hmm. it is. They all have yeah. a uh, so, you know, the other thing that often comes up in discussions about democracy reform is universal voting. Um, what do you what do you, you both think about that? So the the notion that people would be automatically registered to vote or even in, in the Australian model, where if you don't vote, you get something that's that's the equivalent of, of a parking ticket or, you know, something along those lines. Uh, what what do you what do you make of that and, and how might just increasing the number of voters help to change some of these incentives we've been talking about? Uh, this is the kind of investment in our democracy that we should be making. I would be for um, everything all the way up to compulsory voting. I would, uh, because right, right now you have this kind of decrepit, uh, kludgy system that everyone's losing faith in. Uh, and so if you had a larger number of people voting, I think then you would immediately see, wait a minute, like why is it that everything gets decided, decided in the party primary uh, and this doesn't reflect what I think at all. <laughs> you know, it's not like the more, uh, if you had more people participating, you would realize just how bizarre and dysfunctional our current system is. So I'm for anything that's going to lead in that direction. I would probably be, I probably disagree a bit here. I, I, I believe in informed, I believe in informed participation. I want people to participate on their own free will. Now, if you don't want to vote, you know, you have a right not to vote. And you know, I think you should vote, but if you don't believe in the system, if you don't, if you don't think it's worth your time, well then, you know, I'm not going to waste my time trying to explain to somebody why they should, why they should. Uh, but, 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 but the, that's the bad news. The good news is, I think in many respects there is greater. When I was younger, people used to talk about voter apathy all the time. Apathy was the big thing. Nobody was happy, and frankly, it was a more contented time. And, and now, I would argue that. We don't talk much about voter app. We don't talk as much about voter apathy as we used to, because it seems like so many people are energized and engaged. Now, not always in a healthy way. I mean, they're angry, and you know, I feel like at times we've lost a sense of shame and the sense of, the, of ability for people to to, to 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 recognize their own hypocrisy. Now, I get it. We're in politics. There's always a certain amount of hypocrisy. I accept that, and you know, that's probably somewhat normal. But nowadays, I mean, the politics, now, man, it, 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 yeah, it's well beyond the pale. I agree. It's like it's it's like um, it, it's, it's like the politics is so situational. I mean, and, and like you talk to somebody and say, like, my goodness, you know, you're taking the you're taking a position 180 degrees opposite to what you just did a couple of years ago. The only difference is that when your guy when your guy does whatever is going on, that's that's righteous and just. If the other guy does the same thing a couple of years later, he's your your opponent. Well, does the same damn thing. Well, that's a human rights violation, you know. You know, so and they don't. And a lot of people don't 
don't choose to recognize that. I mean, and just kind of dismiss it as if uh, as if this is all just just politics. But it's gotten it. You know, again, I get that there's hypocrisy. You just well, Charlie, I I want to double down on what you're saying because you've seen the changes. Um, it's going to get worse, not better. Uh, and the question I would pose to you and to everyone here today is like, where do we think this ends? How does it get resolved? And uh, I'm going to tell you all where it ends. It ends in catastrophe, in unthinkable scenes of violence and unrest and strife. Uh, and uh, even, again, this Civil War 2.0 that, that I, I referenced earlier, political stress in this country is at Civil War levels, according to various scholars who measure this sort of thing. So you've seen it, you've lived it, uh, you see where we're sliding. And then the question is, what do we do? Do we just let it sink into the mud? Do we let the mistrust rise to this level? Do we let the hypocrisy, uh, as you're suggesting? Just, like, it, and right now there are no real political repercussions. There's this kind of soft set of norms that uh, people relied on to keep us uh, essentially in some level of like discipline or self-regulation or check, and those are all gone. And, and, you know, in, in some ways, Trump has been the person to kind of expose just how reliant upon those norms we were. Uh, and now that they're gone, we're looking for a substitute and they're nowhere to be found. Uh, you know, to me, the only thing we can do is try and invest in a better, more resilient system that actually carries with it some of these uh, reforms and new incentives that we would like to see. It's a very, very big lift. Uh, but we need to do it or else we're going to end up heading down the other road, which we all can see very clearly is speeding up. We're like heading down. It was like a, one of those, you know, movies where like you're in here and it's about to speed up. It's a bit, unfortunately, like climate change. It reminds me of that. So anyway, Charlie, I just want to emphasize what you're just saying and saying like, look, like we all see it. You've lived it. Like, let's do something about it. You know, I was just going to say, I thought January 6th, I, I was very shaken on that day, just watching those images. I, I thought, OK, that's the end. You know, that's now, okay, now we've gotten this out of our system. As awful this was, got to get better. Now I'm starting to think that was just the beginning. You, you know, that, it's just, uh, or is it more, more like that? That was like the, the flare up before the series of earthquakes, you know, where there's like a pre shock. That, that's the, yeah. January 6th was not the earthquake. January 6th was the thing before the earthquake. Right. I, I just thought that was, you know, kind of a seminal moment. And, you know, where we, I never just watching those images in that building with you know I'd spent so much time in seeing that guy walking across the rotunda with a Confederate flag draped over his shoulder or hanging over his shoulder on the pole. I, I just I just couldn't imagine that these people were able to forcibly enter the Capitol and you know go go around and just destroy property and fight with the police and you know try to actually disrupt the transfer of power. I thought this is just. It is almost surreal. I mean, I, I just didn't believe, I almost couldn't believe what I was watching at that day. I mean, I was, I was on CNN that day, by the way, which was the best ratings day in history because I was on CNN. Well, no, because of what happened. <laughs> no, but uh, yeah. it was their best ratings day in history, they told me later. But, but just being on and just feeling so emotional about the whole thing. Of um, course, you worked there. You lived there. Yeah. Other people so that... I mean, but to me, it was just like, I just can't believe I'm witnessing this. You know, just... There's more like it coming down the pike, Charlie. Well, and that actually leads to sort of how I wanted to bring this conversation to a close. So we've talked about the Forward Party, which is which is a movement. Uh, Charlie, you're involved with Renew America, which is a movement. Right. So we've clearly got some momentum going in the in these different directions. But, 
you know, at, at what point is a movement not going to be, be enough? At what point do we need something that is more like a, a bona fide third party? What are some of the, the signs that you're going to be looking for moving forward as, you know, when we reach that line of demarcation or, you know, whatever metaphor you want to use about when it's time to have more than just a movement, if at all? Well, I, let, let me say that it, it's urgent. <laughs> you know, in my mind, we, we literally have one cycle. We have 12 months. Uh, not to put pressure on the people watching this, but we have 12 months. One big step forward would be to improve the incentives of legislators so they can vote their conscience and not get castigated by their party. Not be as beholden to their party, really. Like if you're beholden to the voters, that's great. Uh, if you're beholden to 51% of the people in your district, that's the point. Um, so if we can get these ballot initiatives across the finish line in, let's call it three, four or five states, then you'd see incentives improve for six, eight, ten senators. I mean, that's a huge deal. That could be enough to save democracy. Uh, I'm for better incentives as quickly as possible. And I'm for any third party emerging, whether it's the forward party or some other group. Um, in my mind, the duopoly has run its course and we need to try and transition to either multi-member dicks and the rest of it through the Fair Representation Act or uh, multi-party democracy with more than two parties, three parties, four parties, five parties, whatever. Um, so can we get that done in the next one to three years? We're going to find out. And if we can't get that done, uh, then I think we're going to see the negative consequences pretty quickly. Well, look, I... I, I, I want to be. I always want to be optimistic, and you know, I, I've always felt Americans are pretty practical, pragmatic. This is a country that a bunch of doers. I always felt like we're the. This is this country's always been the point of the spear. A lot of innovation occurs here. Something special about this place. That's why people come here. You know, people they still breaking down the. Do you see what's happening on the border? Hey, people trying to get in here. Um, too many of them unlawfully, unfortunately. But that's so. There's something special about this place. Uh, people want to be part of it. And so, but and part of what that attraction is, there's always been a certain amount of stability, political stability. The war, but there's been a lot of political stability for much of our history. And, and you know, we always kind of figured it out. You know, and that's one thing I noticed. I noticed this from the Europeans. This is pre-Trump, by the way. Pre-Trump, I remember in Germany, they said, you know, we always figure with the Americans now, they do a lot of stuff, but at the end of the day, they, they figure it out. They get it done. Now we're not so sure. We're not so sure. And that was before Trump. You know, they were starting to work. We had these battles, these high stakes games with, you know, the debt ceiling and government shutdowns and all this stuff. And it just, it looked destabilizing. And, you know, but that was not the American thing. America, you know, is kind of a business oriented country and, you know, instability is bad for business. You know, it is bad for business. You know, you want, you want certainty, stability, certain amount of discipline, certain amount of order. You kind of have, you know, it's not like in other countries where, uh, you know, they have they have, you know, political disruption. You know, it's change. It's not it's not orderly and peaceful like here. That's one reason why people want to come here. It, but but we this wake up call that we got on January sixth. So you know, maybe that 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 normal orderly process is fragile and might not be the sure thing we always thought it was. And so I don't know, I don't have an answer, but I do think that most people in this country you know, want it, to, want it to succeed. They don't want to blow it up. They're not nihilists. Uh, most of them are not. Although we have a bunch of people who are, and we, uh, um, but we don't want to, they don't, they don't want the system to fail. 
And it's time to give those people a voice and a home. That's really the, the whole mission. I, I agree with you, Charlie. That's where most Americans are. It's just where the heck do they go today? Yeah. Right. And, uh, you know, we did have lots and lots of, of great questions that we didn't have time to get to. Um, I, I think people are even eager to dig into this stuff even more in the the, the nitty gritty than we were able to get to today. Um, as, if people do want to perhaps contact each of you or, or your respective organizations, um, is there, there a good way to do that or to, to keep this conversation going moving forward? Yeah, so I, I, I am, this is my mission in life. I do it every day. Um, so please do just reach on out to the forward party. The, the person to do so is uh, Blair, B-L-A-I-R at forwardparty.com. Um, so it looks like Jenna's typing that up. You can also reach out to me on social media, uh, the forward party, Andrew Yang. Uh, but let's do it. Let's build a movement. Let's get it done. I love democracy, nerds. Uh, you all see it clearly. We have to be the people that take this message to the rest of the country because they all can feel it. They're like, hey, it's not working. What do we do? There's nothing that we can do. Uh, and then we have to go to them. It's like, oh, there is something we can do. Enough is get together. We can actually change the mechanics, change the incentives and give ourselves a real chance. And then people's eyes will light up uh, and we, we will show the way, show the way forward. So thank you. This is such a joy. And Charlie, I'd love to be in touch. Uh, you know, I think you and I are like-minded about a lot of this stuff. I, I don't know how good a job I did of onboarding you during this hour, Charlie, but this was my goal um, to, for you to become a stealth forwardist and then you can, you know, bring the message on TV or wherever. Thoughts? Well, no, did I get you? Well, well, you know, look, you have a lot of great ideas. A lot of, you know, look, I think you're, 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 you're innovative in that you want to, you want to disrupt the system in a positive way. You want to get you want to find an outlet for a lot of people who feel orphaned right now or homeless, as you said. And I think that's important. You know, I got involved with a group too, that feels the same way they want to like, I, but I'm, I'm not in the position where I want a new party. I, I cause I just don't think new parties work, but I do feel like that the, uh, the party shouldn't take their members for granted. All of, you know, and, and just assume a blind loyalty, which happens. You know, you're, you know, it's my team. If you're not with my team, you know, you're, you're a traitor. And, and at, at some point you have to say, well, if you betray certain values, why should I be loyal to you? You know, if, if you know, and, you know, I, I, I can still deviate then. It, it, yeah. In, in my opinion, Charlie, the Republican Party should be moderate Republicans and it's Republican slash Trumpers. And the Democratic Party should be progressives and Democrats. There should probably be a party somewhere in the middle. Uh, and then if you had that system, it would be much more sane because, you know, dozens of your former colleagues would be not going along with the Trump line. They just have to because it's one party. It should not be one party, in my opinion. By the way, uh, Jenna will give you my Gmail address after yeah, the show we'll, here. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll connect you guys for sure. And uh, we'll keep keep this conversation going. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. Thank everybody. you, Penn State. Thank you, Jenna. Thank you, democracy. Yeah, let's go. We'll All save right. it in Pennsylvania first. <laughs> All thank right. You, Penn State, wonderful to be a visiting fellow with the McCourtney Institute. And uh, we are. All Penn right. State. Penn State. Thanks, everybody. Have a great night. <laughs>